Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am super excited to be here with Frank Zhao, Senior Director of Quantitative Equity Research at S&P Global. Frank, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hi, Sam. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to participate. Awesome. It is super exciting for me to have you here. One of the topics that comes up all the time in our community is finance, and in particular, how folks that are learning machine learning or practicing machine learning can apply some of what they're learning to making money in the stock market. It comes up all the time, and we don't cover it nearly enough on the podcast. And this is what you do every day. So uh, I think folks will be interested in hearing what you've got to say on the topic and the way you are applying NLP in particular to some of these opportunities. Before we dive into that topic, though, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got started working at you know this intersection of, of finance and uh, machine learning. Sure. Like you mentioned, I do quantitative equity research. And the way I like to kind of explain it is quantitative equity research is a data science uh, plus domain knowledge, in this case, equity investing. I've been in my current research-oriented role uh, for the past eight-plus years. And in the past three years or so, we've diverted more resources to extract investment insights uh, from non-numerical data sets. Uh, such as natural language, audio, and images. My work particularly have uh, been focusing on uh, extracting investment insights from earnings call transcripts. Uh, How did I get into kind of this uh, space? I think part of it is my uh, academic background. I have computer science, economics, and financial engineering degrees. And I always wanted to uh, be at the intersection of you know, leveraging computers, uh, but do something that's business and uh, finance kind of related. And so for me, this is the path of least resistance and I couldn't be happier, you know, doing what I do. That's awesome. So it, you, you started to hint at what, what you and, and your group is focused on, but maybe tell us a little bit more about the specific focus that you and your team have at S&P Global. And I guess, tell us about S&P Global. I think everybody knows, you know, S&P, at least from the perspective of the index, but tell us more broadly about what you're focused on there. Sure. So the team that I am part of, uh, we're within one of the four kind of uh, divisions, which is called market intelligence. And with market intelligence, I think that we kind of provide a predominantly financial markets related cutting edge uh, analytics and then kind of data. Now, the research group that I am part of, I think the closest uh, analogy would be to uh, a sell side investment bank equity research group. And I will say the main difference is that instead of having uh, soft dollar arrangements, what we have is we write uh, our these empirical publications and then in exchange our clients, institutional investors, purchase analytics and uh, data sets from us. Okay. So sell side investment bank research, you know, they're typically researching companies, stocks, and writing reports about those companies and their 
uh, expected future performance. And that analogy applies to you and that you your group is doing similar things, but based on uh, natural language processing and other machine learning uh, technologies. Is that what you're what you're saying? Yeah, uh, that's kind of correct. So, uh, you know, typically there are two uh, types of kind of uh, main schools of investing. Uh, so one is, you know, f- uh, fundamental oriented, where the analysts take a very deep uh, dive into the financial statements, where, you know, they kind of uh, know a handful of uh, stocks very intimately. And whereas quantitative uh, stock investing, uh, which is what I do, where, uh, you know, we look at a portfolio of hundreds of stocks and then trying to leverage computers and statistics to make a robust uh, kind of forecast. Now, in regard, in the past kind of several years, you know, we've kind of starting to do a lot more data science and machine learning kind of work. I think uh, part of the reason is that our clients are increasingly paying attention to to non-numerical data sets, such as, uh, you know, language, audios, and image, like I mentioned, uh, because uh, some of the traditional data sets from, let's say, financial statements, I think a lot of low-hanging fruit have been kind of picked. Now they're increasingly, you know, trying to uh, differentiate themselves, see if they could come up with more uh, sort of newer investment insights. Got it. So let's maybe dig into some of the specific projects that you've worked on to, you know, get a better sense of the way that you apply data science to this challenge. Um, can you walk us through some examples of the kinds of things you're doing? Yeah, so absolutely. So we have kind of published an NLP paper series. There are three papers, you know, focusing on earnings call transcripts. And, you know, earnings calls are basically these periodic uh, calls that are held by the executives at publicly traded firms. Um, and uh, it is public to everyone where the executives review um, their uh, latest financial results, as well as kind of discuss some future projections, as well as perhaps, you know, new product launches. Now, in order to kind of uh, understand and extract investment kind of insights from these transcripts, you know, we applied NLP. So we've done uh, three empirical publications first. So first, you know, we uh, wanted to kind of introduce the NLP data science topic uh, to our uh, institutional clients who are very quantitative uh, but may not as well versed in data science. So we did a primer, which is the ABCs of NLP, uh, where we're trying to talk about the what and the how. And also we made available about, you know, 400 plus lines of Python code where our clients able relatively quickly to use the Python code to do some basic NLP analysis on the transcripts. I can just jump in there. I think what is subtle but amazing in just where we are in the machine learning is that you know you can give someone 400 lines of Python code and have them do something meaningful, even though you know maybe it's an example and it's not going to give them kind of the trading edge, but you know you can give them a meaningful example of things that they can do with NLP on an equities research or in these stock mark in these uh, financial transcripts. Can you give us an example of what? they were able to do with the examples you provided? 
So within that kind of uh, Python code, we are trying to come up with a number of uh, predictive uh, analytics. And they broadly could be categorized into two buckets. Uh, one is sentiment-based. So uh, we end up actually leveraging very comprehensive predefined dictionary in the context of business and finance. There are some existing literature uh, where it says domain-specific dictionary has a lot more efficacy and power. The other broad category of predictive signals is what we call transparency scores. So the idea there is to quantify the level of transparency that firms provide via uh, executives' direct and subtle actions and behaviors. So one example there may be the uh, language complexity. So the intuition is as follows, that we think when firms are doing really well, that uh, it is in the best interest of firms to provide maximum kind of transparency. And even the toughest questions, in our opinion, could be explained simply, directly, and succinctly. I think it is when things aren't going as well, whether transitory or otherwise, executives perhaps uh, may increase their uh, language complexity by using more polysyllabic words or use more you know, complex sentence structures to soften the bad news via obfuscation. The triple negative. <laughs> <laughs> it, with these examples... Can you talk a little bit about the techniques you're applying? Is it, uh, are you doing kind of bag of words and, you know, looking for frequencies of complex words or are you doing uh, more advanced things, embeddings or word to vec or you know, what's the, the general approach you take both in this, you know, the simple example that you provided to your clients in this ABC's paper, but, you know, more broadly in your work? Sure. So actually kind of both, you know, uh, progressively, we uh, layered on more complexities. So I think initially it was a bag of words. Um, it's uh, simple, but yet it's very transparent and intuitive. Uh, in the context of equity investing, that's actually very, very important. Just uh, there are many estimators, especially on the unsupervised side, they tend to be a little bit more kind of opaque. We've also kind of used sort of more advanced sort of techniques. So in our latest publication from end of January of this year, one of the things we did was sentence level processing, where we systematically identified uh, a number of uh, market moving topics, as well as their surrounding neighboring descriptors to figure out, you know, what financial related topics that are market moving that the executives are discussing and how do they feel around those topics? You know, whether the firms are accelerating their revenue, their, whether they're expanding their margin. We've also kind of used uh, some, you know, techniques uh, that are within kind of data science. So one of the things we did in our latest publication is coming up with various weighting schemes, you know, to create a weighted average uh, sentiment scores as opposed to, say, a simple average construct. So, for instance, uh, TF-IDF a term frequency, inverse document frequency, which is a concept from informational retrieval. 
Another example may be, you know, measuring uh, language similarity using, for instance, cosine similarity. Uh, basically, converting the text between two pairwise calls, you know, into a, a list of kind of numbers, and then you know, measuring the geometric angle between the two vectors. Smaller the angle, the language is more similar. If the angle is wider, it's more dissimilar. Mm. I'm imagining there that you might look at transcripts that resulted in a big stock price increase and use that as a label and try to find, you know, for a new transcript, if it's close to, to that, does that kind of thing work? Or is it, uh, are you looking at the cosine similarity for, you know, more granular types of insights? That's a great question, Sam. I will probably say it's kind of closer to kind of the latter. Uh, I think there are a lot of similarities between data science and uh, you know quantitative or systematic uh, research. I will say one kind of difference is that uh, within quantitative research, we actually think um, spend a lot of time thinking about the economic intuition. You know, for instance, why firms that exhibit more positive sentiment why they should historically outperform and why they will continue to outperform or why firms display a higher level of transparency, why they should kind of historically outperform. More often than not, we don't train specifically uh, to uh, future stock returns just because within the space, uh, the signal to noise ratio tend to be very low. Uh, where, um, you know, your signals, um, if you train it that way, your signals may have very, very unbelievable predictive power uh, where you're just minting money. But uh, once you take your signals to data that uh, the methods haven't seen, they kind of quickly decay to noise. It also brings to mind some of Nassim Taleb's black swan and resiliency, robustness, that kind of thing. If you're just trading on kind of back-tested signals, you really have no fundamental robustness to changes in, in the future. Right. Uh, so exactly. So uh, I think one of the really interesting and challenging things about the financial markets is dynamic you know, every year it tend to be kind of, uh, you know, self uh, kind of uh, learning. So uh, I think, you know, economic intuition and robustness uh, is a very, very sort of big in our field. I think the most important thing is when you're trying to come up uh, with these signals, you want uh, to making sure they will work into the future. So from that sense, data science, NLP, there are more or tools, you know, perhaps to do a better uh, signal constructions to extract newer kind of insights. Yeah, I think all of this speaks to the relationship, you know, maybe the tension between kind of data science as a tool absent of domain expertise and the, the role of domain expertise. And you're making it pretty clear that it's it's not about just kind of throwing tools willy nilly at these earnings transcripts and using those to generate signals, but more that data and tools that can extract information from it in the hands of domain experts, you know, becomes really useful. Can you talk about the relationship between uh, domain expertise and data science in your work? Sure, absolutely. Great question. And you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know, I feel like one of the things even within the data science domain that is very popular is feature engineering. 
basically applying uh, data science tools and estimators, you know, within the context of your industry or the problems that you're trying to kind of solve. Now, the way I kind of uh, see it is that, you know, we're starting to have convergence between data science and systematic or empirical research. So my view on it is empirical research has been around since the mid-1950s with the Nobel laureates, uh, uh, Harry Market with his thesis, modern portfolio kind of theory. And then in the late 70s, you know, the investment community to really kind of embrace statistics and computers trying to extract meaningful insights uh, that are void of human emotions. Now, in the past 10 plus years, as you know, there's this proliferation of uh, data science. And I think one of the main reasons, you know, uh, with that is uh, firms that are outside of investment management are starting to embrace and quantify, you know, data points to make more informed decision. Now, in terms of investment management, in, in the past kind of couple of years, there have been uh, some literature starting to explore, you know, machine learning kind of tools that typically that uh, systematic equity researchers haven't used. Perhaps one of the reasons is due to opaqueness, you know, such as um, neural network or uh, deep learning. But I think uh, uh, the more traditional uh, statistical methods and frameworks, uh, perhaps there may be some saturation. So one of the things, uh, you know, market participants, institution investors, uh, you know, they're trying to differentiate their predictive uh, signals and analytics by embracing some of these newer techniques, see if they could come up uh, with more differentiated actionable insights. What I heard there was, on, on the one hand, you've got these traditional statistical techniques that have been well studied for many years in finance, and uh, it's kind of the nature of finance that you know anything that's well, well studied and well understood is not differentiating because it's kind of cost of entry. Everybody knows how to do that, and everybody does it, at least at these, you know, your top tier clients. And then uh, on the other hand, you've got newer techniques like deep learning that are more opaque, but also not just more opaque, but because they, in a lot of ways, take care of the feature engineering as opposed to allowing data scientists to do feature engineering, uh, they distance the domain expertise. You know, it's not just, we talk about deep learning as opaque front end, usually from the perspective of you can't see inside of it. You don't understand why the decisions are being made, but you're also raising an interesting point, which is it's harder to influence it and apply domain expertise. Is that what you're, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. So I, I think there are kind of, you know, uh, two things uh, come to uh, mind. So uh, one is that um, I think uh, the part that's important is I think the supervised kind of learning, you know, supervised neural network or deep learning. I think there's definitely a kind of uh, a place uh, within investment management. And I think investment management is kind of uh, going in that direction. Um, you know, we're kind of starting to kind of uh, in- embrace it where there's more transparency, where the researchers, their intuition get to drive, uh, do, uh, drive the modeling as opposed to the modeling kind of, you know, driving the uh, research. 
I'll also say is I think the second kind of uh, part is with the kind of the deep uh, learning. I think when you have you know kind of enough uh, layers, I think it's kind of hard to kind of disentangle you know exactly uh, why uh, you know certain features are being generated or why are certain kind of uh, you know weights uh, sort of uh, assigned to it. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, I, I think, you know, supervised neural network, I think, um, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, I think the investment community will have some, you know, uh, breakthroughs. So where, where does that leave you in your desire to apply your domain expertise in uh, this, you know, deep learning kind of future? Sure. So I think the domain expertise is kind of still important uh, in the sense that um, I think, you know, you still uh, need to kind of figure out uh, what kind of the inputs are, you know, uh, that have uh, economic underpinning, you know, to kind of feed kind of in there. And um, when, you know, the uh, weights that are sort of moving between the layers, as well as, you know, having the outputs, you know, you could try to do a bit of reverse engineering and trying to figure out why this information is kind of additive and it may be different from some of the, you know, traditional uh, uh, statistical uh, methods that you're kind of uh, using. So I would say, you know, within data science, uh, many of the supervised methods, uh, I think uh, empirical quantitative researchers have been using for years and even decades. Uh, I think, you know, the part uh, that's uh, unsupervised, I think that's kind of relatively new to the community. And then, you know, uh, once, you know, we have a, a better understanding and more intuitive feel, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, perhaps there will be uh, some new insights we could extract from there. So w- walk us through the process of doing what you do, delivering what you deliver. Your your final deliverable is ultimately a, a publication that a, a client is consuming about some either individual equity or a set of equities. Yeah, that's uh, uh, correct. So I, I think in terms of kind of research, uh, uh, part of the group is it kind of uh, culminates in a empirical publication. And the closest uh, example would be these uh, research papers that you see that are published by finance professors, where the steps kind of involved is initially we start with economic hypothesis. We think firms whose executives exhibit more transparency or exhibit more uh, higher positive sentiment, why they should historically outperform. And then, you know, from there, we go look for the data sets that are kind of relevant, that be able, help that we're able to empirically test out or have hypothesis. And now, is, is this only earnings call transcripts or, or, or audio or... Are there other data sets that you are uh, fusing into your earning call focused pipelines? Sure. In terms of, you know, myself, the research has specifically kind of pertained to earnings call transcripts. But in terms of the frameworks and kind of capabilities, a lot of it may be applicable to sort of other data sets. And then you could always, once you distill down, there's uh, signals, let's say, from various data sources. You could sort of combine them in an intelligent way where the composite signal is even more powerful than the uh, individual ones. Got it. So you, you've collected these data sets, in your case, primarily transcripts. I've got to imagine that your challenge is like 
most other data scientists and that the data is not pristine and you have to do some work to get it ready for your pipelines and your modeling? That's a, uh, such a good question and observation, yes. And I will probably go uh, even further in the sense that when it comes to kind of investment, empirical kind of research, I think our requirement for the cleanliness and pristineness uh, of the data perhaps uh, is even kind of uh, higher. For instance, there's kind of a saying where you're not sure about your input data set, then it uh, doesn't matter how compelling the results are, you have less sort of a confidence in them. So a lot of biases, uh, you know, we try to be very, very mindful uh, of. So for instance, a look ahead, uh, what that means is uh, making sure that you're not using a data, you know, in your back test that was not available in the public domain when at that particular point, you know, when you're assessing your uh, strategy or building your portfolio, you want to mitigate uh, survivorship bias. You know, what that means is if you ever look at the performance of all the firms and constituents, let's say a U.S. market right now, you know, such as Amazon and Apple, you know, your performance backtest will be spectacular, right? Just because they are the survivors, they're the winners. So, you know, we also kind of want to be vigilant in that. And uh, in addressing those kind of biases is that, are there tried and true techniques that you're applying or is there research and innovation that is happening to help you uh, avoid those kind of biases? Uh, I, I think kind of both, but I think it will be kind of uh, more the uh, former. So, you know, for instance, to mitigate the look head bias, you know, one of the innovations within the investment community that we came up with is something called uh, a pit, a point in time. Uh, basically be able to kind of capture various data points with a timestamp that's down to the seconds. So such that, uh, you know, you have a time series of snapshots, you know, in terms of survivorship kind of bias, your typically uh, investment professionals have a mandate is uh, the universe they're able to operate from. So for instance, you know, my mandate is U.S., uh, large kind of caps. So for instance, in this case, maybe uh, we may use Russell 1000 uh, or S&P 500 as a proxy. So uh, S&P 500 constituents change over time. And as long as you have snapshots of those, you know, you could sort of uh, mitigate uh, the survivorship bias. Uh, so you've, you've cleaned your data you have your hypothesis, you, you've sourced your data, cleaned it up, and then you're uh, doing your analysis, building your models. And we've talked uh, a bit about the modeling process, or at least a few examples. Uh, anything you'd like to add on the that step of the process? Uh, yeah, I'll just add. So when we kind of get there, we use a variety of frameworks and tools that we have in our repertoire. And then now, you know, including, you know, what's available uh, within the data science kind of, uh, you know, toolkit. Um, I think relative to kind of the data science kind of uh, endeavor, I think within uh, empirical, uh, you know, equity research, not only, uh, you know, you need to come up with something that's robustly kind of, uh, you know, predictive, uh, but also it needs to be additive 
uh, to uh, the existing signals and models that are people using out there, um, which many have been perfecting for uh, years and even uh, decades. And so the data science sort of analogy I like to use here is that um, it is not enough to come up uh, with a, an omni search, uh, but you have to come up uh, with an omni search that is, you know, incrementally uh, better than uh, what uh, people are using kind of, uh, you know, currently. And, and, you know, as you could sort of tell, you know, kind of over time, the bar gets higher and higher. What's an omni search? Oh, uh, like uh, kind of typing uh, in your kind of search box and then you actually, uh, you know, complete uh, words and, you know, uh, phrases and so forth. Got it. So that's just an example of not, you can't just do something that is already done. You have to make it better. Uh, oh, correct. And not only better, it needs to be additive. Uh, to so uh, in the sense that let's say uh, you know uh, people are using uh, these uh, sort of um, uh, you know these kind of signals and you, you know your new one need to once it kind of get it added in there you know it needs to kind of improve let's say your forecasting power or uh, you know or mitigate your risk or a combination of thereof. Okay, got it. Uh, so I imagine then one of the big challenges that you have to deal with and, and you know, one of the, if not the next step in the process is evaluation, uh, how you evaluate the results or the models that you've created or the analysis that you've done. It's already come up indirectly in talking about things like look ahead and, and survivorship and, and things like that. But what's the general process there. Uh, you mentioned that you can't just, you know, backtest everything. It's got to be a little bit more sophisticated. Kind of great kind of question. So, you know, for uh, every, uh, you know, potentially a new uh, signal or kind of strategy, um, you, you know, um, uh, uh, practitioners, uh, you know, we actually look at like a multitude of you know, uh, metrics or statistical sort of uh, metrics to gauge its kind of uh, efficacy and to kind of ensure uh, whether they're all kind of painting a very uh, uh, similar kind of story speaking to its kind of, you know, robustness. So for instance, one statistical popular estimator is uh, Spearman correlation. Basically, uh, it is a proxy for signal strength where we kind of take a look at how, uh, you know, stock level signal values at time T, um, you know, how well they uh, measure up or correlate to stock level kind of four returns at T plus one, where T could be, uh, say, you know, a monthly or quarterly periodicity. Okay. So again, a uh, similar question to the one I asked earlier, are you primarily applying tried and true evaluation metrics and, and techniques, or are there unique things that you need to develop as you're innovating in the, the modeling and the, the data pipelines? Sure. So I think, um, you know, uh, in terms of gauging uh, the efficacy of a signal, uh, I think uh, there is a set of uh, measures, um, you know, we, um, you know, myself, as well as, uh, you know, our institution clients, they kind of, you know, uh, look at their uh, pretty domain specific. I think a lot of the innovation is, you know, coming in more about, uh, you know, using 
the new uh, tools and kind of frameworks within kind of data science uh, to see, you know, how to extract more meaningful information from non-numerical data sets, uh, as well as to see, um, you know, able to kind of capture some additional in information. So for instance, one of the things we've been exploring ourselves is, you know, leveraging, a, you know, neural network, trying to capture some of the more non-linear relationships um, that, uh, you know, potential signals may exhibit. Uh, and so uh, along those lines, talking about tools and, and using the tools, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience there. Are you developing your own tools? Or are you primarily using off-the-shelf tools? Uh, what does your kind of stack look like there? Sure. So I would kind of say um, um, uh, most of it uh, are more uh, proprietary uh, uh, libraries. And then uh, most of the heavy lifting, um, you know, for instance, uh, with the transcript work, uh, they are done in kind of Python. Uh, we do leverage a little bit of the pre-built uh, libraries, uh, but most of them are, you know, things that we have full transparency uh, kind of over, you know, for instance, within NumPy, you know, calculating something kind of uh, very simple. In that case, we won't reinvent the wheel. Now, in terms of the more, uh, you know, a sort of sophisticated frameworks or estimator, so for instance, like a neural network, um, you know, uh, at least my personal opinion is the best way to understand, have a, uh, the best intuition why things are uh, moving the way they do is to build from scratch. So, uh, in, you know, in this regard, we probably will leverage less tensile, uh, tensor flow initially, and we'll actually build uh, everything kind of uh, from um, scratch. And once we have a much better intuitive feel, then perhaps, you know, we'll uh, leverage um, uh, some of the uh, things in TensorFlow, for instance. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I, I, what that says to me is uh, in another type of organization, the thing that they might be optimizing on is efficiency and getting some result or prediction. Uh, but in your business, the thing you really need to optimize on or one of the things that you need to optimize on, you know, beyond efficiency and performance of the models is understanding. And the way to, to drive the most understanding in the process is to just build it up from the bottom. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think when it comes to it. Um, everything else being uh, the same, I think we place the most weight on economic underpinning and intuition, uh, just kind of transparency, um, you know, because we want to know why these, uh, the signal is, is um, you know, uh, overweighting these type of uh, stocks in the portfolio and then underweighting kind of uh, other. And, you um, um, you know, and in fact, I, I think, you know, most, if not all of my very sophisticated institutional clients, those are of paramount importance to them uh, as well. And you'd think that a neural network is, you know, essentially kind of a commodity, but when you really start to, to play with it, you can get very different results based on very obscure things that are deep in the bowels of your framework, like the way it, you know, some default parameter or some learning rate or, you know, something like that. And so if you don't, if you don't know that inside out, you don't really understand the decisions that the models are producing is it, what I'm, that's what I'm hearing is your perspective. 
Yeah, so uh, in, in fact, that kind of connects really well with one of your earlier kind of, you know, uh, questions why, um, you know, in many ways is uh, awesome. I, I'm starting to see a lot of brilliance in kind of the neural network, uh, why the, there uh, is and always will be the importance of kind of domain expertise. And I think I, as well as, um, you know, others in the space will always see neural network more as a tool. Um, and the second point I want to kind of make here is it's kind of funny you kind of uh, mentioned, um, I think, um, you know, data science will like to talk about hyper uh, parameters, basically, it, you know, uh, how one set up their architecture within neural network. I was actually uh, just having this discussion, you know, uh, several weeks back uh, with some of my colleagues. I was like, within neural network, there are so many user uh, you know, defined, you know, per parameters, number of layers, number of nodes within each layer, um, you know, the loss function, a learning rate, and so on and so forth. So on the the model side, the estimator side, you're kind of building that up from scratch. And I'm, I'm curious, like C, C++ or Python, you don't necessarily have a low latency requirement, do you? No, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, not in this particular case. So uh, everything so is kind of uh, within uh, uh, Python. Um, and I think probably with the infrastructure, you know, progressively as, you know, we work with these more, you know, CPU intensive um, frameworks and algorithm, you know, or we want to leverage, uh, you know, cloud computing kind of uh, a lot more. Yeah, that was my next question uh, was beyond the, the models themselves, what are you doing in terms of uh, building out scalable pipelines? Have you, you know, built or do you use any particular tooling to help your researchers manage experiments or access training data or um, you know, collaborate? Yeah, so uh, uh, so absolutely. I think uh, all of the above. So, you know, for instance, you know, one of the things, you know, uh, we, we have, you know, uh, the accelerating of growth of, you know, um, unstructured or non-numerical data sets. There are so many of kind of them. But uh, I think part of the investment is you're not sure uh, which uh, type of uh, data sets will give you incremental additive, you know, investment insights. So, uh, you know, one of the, uh, uh, one of the larger, uh, you know, corporate level initiatives that we have had is called a platform uh, marketplace where we have these many, many of these uh, alternative data sets uh, are kind of on there where the user are able to very quickly, you know, to, uh, you know, visualize the data, to have a better understanding of uh, kind of the data, data and see if it may uh, be, you know, complementary to some of the uh, ideas and workflows, uh, you know, uh, they uh, have. You know, another thing that we're kind of embracing is, you know, uh, recently we uh, announced uh, JV with uh, collaboration with Snowflake, you know, where, um, uh, you know, basically you have uh, uh, the internet where uh, it's a very intuitive um, UI. And so, you know, for instance, our clients, you know, could very, very quickly uh, leverage Snowflake um, and be able to kind of access, you know, all this vast trove of uh, data points. Meaning, so Snowflake is a cloud-based data warehouse uh, that is very popular. And what I'm thinking you're saying is 
Uh, well, two things. Your earlier comment was you don't know what data set's going to be additive, so you have to collect everything and make it easy to explore. And two is you're then exposing all these data sets that you've collected or some subset of them to your clients using some Snowflake compatible interface. Exactly. So, you know, one interface and then, you know, it gives the optionality of clients, you know, kind of using different, uh, you know, cloud kind uh, you know, uh, 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 storage. So giving them that kind of optionality. Um, and then, you know, uh, every, uh, you know, our clients no longer uh, need to store uh, a lot of these uh, data set, you know, on uh, their end. And plus uh, Snowflake, one of the things that's embedded in there is you could kind of pay for usage or kind of speed. Uh, well, maybe to, to wrap things up, I, I referenced the, the broad interest in this topic uh, in our community earlier. For those folks that want to take the next step in applying machine learning to, to equities trading and, and finance, what do you recommend, you know, either as kind of hobbyists or folks that want to, to get into it professionally? Uh, you know, uh, uh, sure. So, you know, I, I will kind of uh, say, you know, uh, there's uh, so much kind of, uh, you know, open source kind of uh, tools out there now, uh, you know, with Anaconda and Python. And then there's uh, so many sort of, um, uh, you know, some uh, data points that are kind of out there, you know, uh, you know, whether you're thinking about making a transition professionally or just kind of doing it kind of more kind of uh, leisurely. I, I think, you know, there's no substitute for just kind of being hands-on. Um, you know, my uh, recommendation would be, um, you know, uh, to pick up on a kind of uh, some uh, domain-specific kind of uh, books and then just kind of implement it. And, you know, if time permits, implement them from scratch and then, um, you know, and, you know, kind of test it out. Um, you know, many platforms have, you know, paper trading accounts. Got it. So, so start with uh, start with imaginary money and not real money. Uh, and I also I, I would have guessed that you would have said make sure that you understand some of the fundamentals of investing as well, and um, you know develop your own economic hypotheses. Is that something that you would recommend? Yeah, sort of. You know, uh, absolutely. You know, think about sort of the main drivers uh, of you know, the equity markets, uh, you know, in the very short term, it could be a random walk, it could be very kind of noisy. But, you know, I, I will say in general, especially the equity asset class, you know, after about 40, 50 years of, of uh, you know, very rigorous kind of empirical research, um, I think uh, on a monthly and, you know, uh, or longer horizon, you know, a portfolio of stocks uh, are, at least in my opinion, are forecastable uh, pretty kind of, you know, uh, robustly. Awesome. Well, Frank, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a bit about what you're up to. Yeah, I uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.